Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to uh, be together as God's people. And uh, our passage this morning isn't, isn't an easy passage to digest. Uh, not only was it fairly long, but it um, speaks about issues that we, we may struggle with. And, uh, and it's also a passage that uh, has been a little bit con- controversial through the history of the church. There are different, different views amongst Christians about uh, what, which events Jesus was speaking about uh, as they sat on the Mount of Olives and spoke about the temple they could see from that mountain. Uh, I asked a few people I know as I was preparing this message, uh, what is Jesus speaking about here? Is it uh, just the destruction of the temple? Is it his second coming? Is it something else? And I think I received as many answers as people who responded. But I think it's important that we see this passage in, in the context of the flow of Mark's Gospel and the fact that this is, uh, this is the last of Jesus' teachings before the events of Easter. Uh, in, in Mark's Gospel and it's a very uh, significant uh, part of Jesus' teaching uh, such that uh, all three of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark and Luke, devote a whole chapter uh, to this passage. And it also stands in the flow of uh, what we've been looking at so far and what we saw particularly last week as Jesus arrived in Jerusalem uh, on the donkey, uh, welcomed as a king, uh, but then he did what was not expected by the Jews. He went into the temple and he cleansed the temple and he spoke uh, words of judgment and discipline to them. Then he cursed a fig tree which the following day was withered and he uh, spoke about uh, the mountain being picked up and thrown into the sea and then he told that very strong parable about the tenants in the vineyard who had not uh, borne fruit, uh, who had killed their landlord's servants and eventually they killed his son and he said uh, this vineyard will be taken away from them and given to someone else. And So really what Jesus is speaking here about is in the flow of that. Uh, Something is is coming to an end. The old is coming to an end and is making way for something new. The heart of Israel's identity as a people was in the temple. The presence of the temple in Jerusalem said to them, our God is our God and he is dwelling among us and we are his people. As long as that temple stood, they knew that God was with them. It was the centre of their worship, it was the centre of their prayers, it was the centre of their community, it was the temple. Now this temple that Jesus knew was actually the second temple. The first had been built by King Solomon but it was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar uh, marched in, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in 587 BC when he carried the Jews off into exile. At that time, the Ark of the Covenant, all of the contents of the temple were lost forever. 
uh, probably just melted down and reused in the Babylonian temples. When the exiles returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, they also rebuilt the temple. That was in 516 BC, 70 years after the exile. There was great celebration at that time because the temple, being back in Jerusalem, said to them, our God is still with us. He hasn't abandoned us. Even though we were in Babylon for 70 years, our God is still with us and his temple is proof of that. In 167 BC, the Greek emperor Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Jerusalem and he set up an idol and, a, and another altar within the temple on top of the altar that was there. And he sacrificed pigs in the temple. Any Jew who refused to bow down to this idol and to uh, take part in these sacrifices were brutally slaughtered. For three and a half years, this idol stood in the temple and it was known as the abomination that causes desolation. As long as that idol stood there and as long as the the blood of pigs, unclean animals, flowed in that temple, no Jew could come in. No Jew could access the presence of God. Three and a half years later, on the 25th of December... 165 BC, the temple was rededicated, the idol was removed, uh, the, the temple was cleansed of the blood of pigs and the right sacrifices were reinstituted. That's why the Jews today, at the same time we celebrate Christmas, they celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival to remember the rededication of that temple in 165 BC. So this three and a half year period is remembered by the Jewish people as one of the darkest periods of their history when the temple was defiled. And so we see that number three and a half used a number of times in the book of Revelation to signify a great time, a time of great persecution when it seems as if God has left and abandoned his people. But it was only three and a half years Uh, and then God reaffirmed his presence. This second temple stood for 500 years before it was renovated and expanded by King Herod. It was one of the biggest building projects of that era in in that region, the, uh, the expansion of this temple. At the time of Jesus, this renovation had been going on for 46 years and it still wasn't finished. That's why the Jews were upset with Jesus when he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They thought he was speaking about this temple and they said, this temple's taken over 40 years to build so far and you think you're going to knock it down and rebuild it in three days? This rebuilding project was actually more about King Herod 
than it was about worshipping God. It was more about Herod making a name for himself. I will be a great king because I will have the biggest temple in the world. Well, the building continued and it continued for another nearly 40 years. So it took nearly 90 years for this temple, this expanded temple, to be completed. And sadly, a few years after it was completed, the Romans came into Jerusalem, 70 AD, and demolished it, stone by stone. So in Israel's history, every attempt to uh, destroy and defile uh, the temple, the place of, of worship for the Jews, was only temporary. It was only a time of discipline. However, what happened in 70 AD was unprecedented. The Jews had never experienced what happened in 70 AD before. Since that time, there has never been a temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And I think because of Jesus and who he is and what he has done, We actually have a good case for saying, and there never will be again, because that marked the end of something and the beginning of something new. So it's understandable that as, as they were coming out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, this disciple looked at this magnificent structure and said, what great stones what, great, what a great building this is. It was a glorious building. It would have been the largest building this disciple would ever have seen in his life. A magnificent building. And so that's why Jesus' words would have been so troubling. It's got to be destroyed. Not one stone will stand upon the other. How could such a magnificent building, which is built as God's temple, how could it be destroyed? So as they left Jerusalem, they went to the Mount of Olives. We saw the picture last week of the Mount of Olives just across the valley from Jerusalem. And if you go to the Mount of Olives today, you have a clear view across and you see the Temple Mount uh, on which currently is built a Islamic mosque, but it's a very clear view. They sat there on the side of the mountain and his disciples were troubled. They'd heard him say, it's going to be destroyed. And so you can understand that they come to him and say, Jesus, what, what are you talking about? Is this really going to happen? And if so, how, how, what are the signs that it's going to happen? Now, a lot of the language in this chapter uh, has made many people think that uh, largely he's speaking about his second coming, uh, the end of the age, the day of judgment. But I want us to notice two things about what Jesus says. Firstly, Jesus' disciples are asking the question about the temple. They've heard him say it's going to be destroyed. Their question specifically is, well, when is it going to happen? How will we know when it's about to happen? Now, in Matthew 24, which is the parallel passage to this, we actually see Jesus' disciples ask two questions. They say... When will this happen? And then they say, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So it's a double-barrel question. And 
Matthew 24 is Jesus' answer to their first part of the question. And then Matthew 25 is Jesus' answer to the second part of their question where he speaks about the time in between the temple's destruction and his coming at the end of the age and what it will be like as we wait and expect him to come. And that chapter 25 ends with that parable of the sheep and the goats when Jesus comes as the judge of all people. But Mark, he only only records the first part of the question. How will we know when the temple is going to be destroyed? And that's the answer that he gives to us. The other thing that we need to see is in verse 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So what Jesus is describing in this chapter, he says, will all take place within the lifetime of people who are alive now at at the time that he uh, speaks these words. Now in Jewish thinking, a generation is 40 years. 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert before they entered the promised land and when those 40 years were up, everyone in the generation who had come out of Egypt had died and there was a new generation that came into the land. So in their thinking, when Jesus says this generation, they're thinking, okay, a 40 year kind of time frame. And it was just under 40 years. Jesus is saying these words at around 33 AD, just under 40 years later, the temple is destroyed in the year 70. And we know that a number of Jesus' disciples uh, were still alive at that time. So this temple, it was, it was a devastating thing for them to hear that this temple is going to be destroyed. Because as I said, the temple was uh, central to everything, their whole identity as, as people. Along with the temple came the priests who were mediators. If we don't have the priests, how can we communicate with God? Uh, we bring our prayers to the priests and the priest offers them up on our behalf. And along with the temple and the priests came the sacrifices. And all of these things came to an end. Not just the temple, but everything in it. The priesthood, all the priests were slaughtered. Uh, The sacrifices came to an end. These things are all part of the old order. And they've all been superseded now by Jesus And they've been given a new expression in Jesus, but also in his people, the church. Jesus has replaced the temple. He is God dwelling among us. If we want to know whether God is with us, we look at Jesus and say, yes, well, Jesus is with us, so we know that God is with us. When Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, he was speaking about himself, his body. Now, united to Christ, the church is called the body of Christ. And Paul says to the Corinthians, we are the temple 
of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They're God's words about the tabernacle that was amongst the Israelites. Now he says, I will be amongst my people in my son Jesus, but now my people will be the temple. God's presence is made manifest uh, among his people. Jesus has replaced the priests. The priest was a mediator between the people and God. He represented the people to God and he represented God to the people. Through the priests, the prayers of the people were brought to God as he put the incense on the altar and the smoke rose up, a a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Jesus is our great high priest. He intercedes for us now before the throne of God. It is through him now that we come to God and we have the confidence that he accepts us and he hears us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. And now united to Christ, the church is called a royal priesthood. As we go about proclaiming the message of the gospel, we are now the means through which people are brought to God as they hear the gospel message from us in our words and in our lives. Paul called his ministry to the Gentiles a priestly service of the gospel of God. And Jesus has replaced the sacrifices by the once and for all sacrifice of himself. He has made atonement for sin in a way that no animal sacrifice could ever do. They were only ever meant to be temporary, those animal sacrifices. And so in him now, the church is the community of the forgiven and is the community of forgiveness Not only do we know the forgiveness of God through Jesus' sacrifice, but we offer the forgiveness to those around us through the Gospel. We reflect Jesus' humility and love by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, as Paul tells us in Romans 12. As we lay down our lives for one another in love and as we lay down our lives for him as we proclaim the gospel to the world. So it kind of depends on where you stand as to how you view this destruction of the temple. It's either the worst news ever because everything that my identity is bound up in has gone and been done away with if you're a Jew who doesn't accept Jesus as your Messiah or it is the best news ever because it says to us that all of that is now in Jesus Christ and if you know him, you know your identity, you know forgiveness, you know freedom, you know access to God. Hypothetically, if the Jews had received Jesus as their Messiah, the temple would still have come to an end probably dismantled by their own hands.
because they would have realised we have no need of this building anymore because of Jesus. The Father was gracious and patient to these people who did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. He could have destroyed it at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. When that temple curtain was torn in two, he could have kept going and just destroyed the whole thing at that moment, at the time of his crucifixion. But he's patient. He waited. He waited 40 years, a whole generation, for that generation who had seen Jesus in the flesh to give them the opportunity to turn to him and to receive him. So what do we make then of this language in this chapter that Jesus uses that sounds like he's speaking about the end of the age, his second coming? Especially in verses 24 to 27. Let me read that again. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Sounds very much like end of the world kind of stuff, doesn't it? Stars falling from the sky, Son of Man coming, uh, the angels going out and gathering his people. What we need to see here is that Jesus is using what, uh, what is known as apocalyptic language. It's the kind of language we see in books like Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. Apocalyptic language isn't meant to be taken strictly literally as a literal account of actual events that are happening, but it uses symbols and images uh, and, uh, and visions to convey uh, the meaning and the significance behind the events that are taking place. We're used to a form of apocalyptic today. Um, I've got a picture up here. Um, you've probably seen cartoons like this in the newspaper. Now we look at that picture and we say, well, we know that election promises are not literally a giant parrot. We, we know that. But we look at that and we say, okay, this, this image is conveying to us a truth or an idea about election promises, that they are empty and they come to nothing, depending on which side of the political spectrum you might stand and what your view is of the government and so on. So the, the image conveys not a literal description but the meaning, the ideas behind the events that are taking place. So in the same way, we know that the stars will not literally fall out of the sky. They can't, can they? Stars are thousands of times larger than the earth. How can they literally fall out of the sky? No, that's a picture of the whole universe being shaken. Um, Jesus uses the imagery of, of stars falling like the figs that fall from a tree when you shake the tree. 
Things are being shaken up. It's a, it's a significant turning point in history. Authorities are being uprooted and overthrown. Kingdoms are being brought to an end. It's the same kind of language used by the prophet Joel, which Peter quotes from the day of Pentecost. The sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood. Well, that didn't actually literally happen on the day of Pentecost, did it? But that language says this is a cataclysmic thing that is happening. It is a turning point in history. God is doing something significant here. So when Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, again he's using that apocalyptic language, but he's also making a direct reference here to Daniel chapter 7. And we looked at this in the home group a couple of weeks ago. In Daniel 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now we hear that and we might automatically think, okay, the Son of Man is coming in the clouds. And we think he's coming from heaven to earth. But in that vision that Daniel has, the Son of Man is not coming from heaven to earth. He is coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And as he comes into the presence of God the Father on his throne, he is given this kingdom and power and authority. This is actually a vision of Jesus' ascension where he's raised up in glory and he's brought and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. When in um, chapter 14, which we'll see uh, next weekend, during his trial, the high priest says to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus' ascension took place uh, 40 days after his resurrection. There's that number 40, significant number 40 again, when his disciples saw him ascend in a cloud. But in that place of authority, at the Father's right hand, he would patiently wait as his people, the Jewish people, are called to come to him in faith. Until that day when by his authority, seated at the right hand of the Father, the old comes to an end, marked by the destruction of the temple. On that day, even though they didn't recognise it, the Jewish leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all saw the Son of Man exercise his dominion and power and authority as that temple was destroyed, as that time of patience and grace uh, for the Jewish people came to an end. 
And then what happened after the temple was gone? We saw that Jesus had warned his disciples. Uh, He'd given them the signs to look out for and he said, when you see these things happening, then flee, leave Jerusalem, go to the mountains. And uh, records tell us that there was a an inexplicable departure of Christians from Jerusalem uh, leading up to these events when the Romans came in and ransacked the city. Suddenly the Christians were gone because they could see it coming. Jesus had warned them and so they left. It wasn't the first time they'd been scattered from Jerusalem but it was the last time. As they went out, they took the Gospel with them. And this has been happening for the last 2,000 years. Christians have been going out into the world, into the, the four corners of the world with the message, the good news of Jesus, not just to Jews now, but to every tribe and tongue and nation. The Greek word for angel literally means messenger. So again, we hear about him sending out his angels and we may automatically think spiritual beings that God sends out. Um, I think here Jesus is speaking about us, his people. We are the messengers who are sent out to the four winds of the earth uh, to gather his people as we share uh, the grace of the gospel to all nations. Philip Scharf was a church historian back in the end of the 19th century. Here's what he wrote about this cataclysmic event. The awful catastrophe of the destruction of the Jewish theocracy must have produced the profoundest sensation amongst the Christians. It was the greatest calamity of Jerusalem, but a great benefit to Christianity a refutation of one and a vindication of the other. It separated them forever. From this point on, the heathen could no longer look upon Christianity as a mere sect of Judaism, but must regard and treat it as a new, peculiar religion in its own right. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple therefore marks that momentous crisis at which the Christian church as a whole burst forth from the chrysalis of Judaism, awoke to a sense of maturity and in government and worship at once took its independent stand before the world. That was the decisive moment that the world looked on and said, ah, Christianity, it's not just a little sect of this Judaism religion. Judaism has been knocked on the head. Its temple is gone, its city is gone. Everything, its whole identity has been wiped out. But Christianity continued to grow and to spread explosively throughout uh, the Roman Empire and the world. But I would say though, Christianity is not a new religion separate from Judaism. Christianity is actually the continuation of Judaism. 
We are in the flow of salvation history. The work that God has been doing from the beginning of history has continued and now flows through the church, all whose faith is in Jesus. Now, there is no distinction between people. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All people must come to God through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no distinction anymore. The most devastating event for the Jews happened because of the most glorious event that happened, not just for the Jews but for all nations. As I said last week, this same Jesus who comes into Jerusalem and declares judgments upon the temple and upon Jerusalem and upon the people and their leaders is the same Jesus who then hands himself over to come under judgment, to be mocked and beaten and crucified. The judgment that he brings is the judgment that he bears himself. And it's a judgment that doesn't just belong to the Jews, but to all peoples of all nations. And that means then the grace and forgiveness that he offers is offered to not just the Jews, but to all peoples and nations. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, there is no distinction the end of the centre of worship in Jerusalem means that all people can come and worship the Father in spirit and truth, wherever they are and whoever they are. We have one, one more picture to show you. That's the Temple Mount today. Um, you can see the, the outline surrounded by the trees where the, the Herod's Temple originally stood And there is the the mosque that sits there, the Dome of the Rock, one of the largest mosques in the world, I believe. The destruction of that temple and the fact that it hasn't stood there for nearly 2,000 years wasn't just a historical, trivial event. The fact that there's no temple there tells me God has been faithful to his promises. The old has been replaced by the new. Jesus Christ really is the new temple. He really is the holy of holies. He is the great high priest. He is the atoning sacrifice, the mercy seat, the mediator, the dwelling place of God, the true Israel, the word of God. And I could keep going. The fact that there is no temple there for the last 2,000 years, tells me that when I come here on Sunday morning and gather with his people, that is an incredibly significant thing. That is an event that has cosmic significance. As we sit here this morning, we are in the flow of what God is doing to redeem this world and to redeem his creation. After Easter, we'll be starting a new series and the series will be the household of God. We'll be exploring what it means for us to be this people, uh, the church, the house of God. What does it mean for us not just to know that, to be in the flow of that, but what does it mean for us to live that out as we uh, express that community, that forgiveness 
that hope as his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the sovereign God that we sung about earlier, who is guiding uh, the destinies of nations and kingdoms and peoples, uh, not just on the large scale of uh, political entities and nations and tribes, but also on the small scale of our own individual lives as we uh, seek to live as your people, uh, trusting you, knowing your forgiveness and reconciliation and hope. Father, thank you that you have acted decisively in history, uh, in your Son, that you have sent him to, uh, to be the fulfilment of everything that foreshadowed him, that in him we have the reality of your presence, of uh, confident access uh, to come into your, to your presence and to know your care for us. Thank you that in him all of our sins once and for all have been taken away and are forgiven and we can stand in confidence and hope because of that. Thank you that in your son Jesus uh, our identity is secure, that we can know we are your people, you are our God. We ask that you will give us the grace that we need to entrust the whole of our lives to him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.